Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. How is everybody doing? I know I'm not that close to the mic. Let me move my face a little bit closer to the mic. Also, let me open up my script. Um, It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood here in Anywhere USA. I know that I promised you guys an episode this weekend, and it's Sunday, so technically it's still the weekend, so you guys are going to get it this weekend. Uh, Maybe you guys will use it going into your work week. I know analytically a lot of you guys listen to me at work, and it's kind of okay with me. That's what's up. Um... (laughs) Um, Like I said, I hope you guys are all doing well. Thank you all for coming back for this latest episode and also for telling others about the podcast. You guys are the best. With that, it's time for me to say thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout-out time. How are you? Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Levittown, Blairsville, and Altoona, Pennsylvania. Always a pleasure. Ashburn, Richmond, Arlington, Alexandria, and Manassas, Virginia. What it do? Tampa, Orlando, Miami, Jacksonville, and St. Petersburg, Florida. So good to see you all again. Goldsboro, Charlotte, Franklin, Raleigh, and Yadkin Village, North Carolina. Welcome back. Detroit, Flint, Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, and Gross Point, Michigan. A little birdie told me that you love, love, love the podcast Trinidad and Tobago in Ireland. Thank you for coming back. Jamaica, Cyprus, Malta, Hungary, Namibia, Vietnam, Colombia, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom, and Canada. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join all of the podcast social accounts. If there are any cases that you'd like to hear me cover or... You just want to say, hey, girl, long-time listener or whatever, you can also email me. Just keep it clean. All of those links as well as the references can be found in the description box below per the use. Our last episode, excuse me, I discussed multiple cases involving missing, murdered indigenous girls and women. Today, I will be discussing what had happened in a sleepy Georgia town when a series of curious and calculated murders occurred in one family over time. For this particular episode, I read the novel Whisper to the Black Candle, Voodoo, Murder, and the Case of Anjet Lyles by Jacqueline Weldon White, and I also relied on Season 8, Episode 6 of City Confidential, A Spoonful of Arsenic, which originally aired July 21st, 2003, as my references, um, for the most part, Although I, you know, always will find some articles somewhere. So I've got other stuff. But these are the two that I really uh, relied on for this. So let's go. The heat was enough to wilt magnolias on Sunday, August 23rd, 1925, when William and Jetta Donovan completed their family with the birth of their third child, the only daughter they'd name Anjette. Anjette was a beautiful child, and she had her father wrapped around her little finger. 
From the start, her charming disposition stretched far beyond the walls of the Donovan home on Lamar Street. Any and all who came to know her found her charms irresistible. Although she was described as being just an average student in school, she'd learned a lot about business from her father, who owned and operated Donovan's Produce Company. In 1947, Ben Franklin Lyles Jr. was a 24-year-old Army vet who'd just returned home from WW2, the big one, and fell hard for the beautiful raven-haired Belle and Jet Donovan. While the two were three years apart in age, one thing they both had in common was being children of parents who had thriving businesses in Macon. Ben himself was part owner in Lyle's Restaurant on Mulberry Street, the heart of Macon. September 7, 1947, the Macon News announced the couple's engagement. On October 12, 1947, the couple wed at the Mulberry Street Methodist Church. The newlyweds set up residency at the Biltmore Apartments on Poplar Street. The couple's love nest was conveniently distanced near both family businesses. Shortly after marrying Ben, bought out his brother's share of Lyle's restaurant, making himself and his mother the sole proprietors. You see, Ben Sr. passed away, I think it was like 1923, something like that. Initially, Anjette enjoyed partaking in the activities of newlywed brides. She had an apartment to turn into a home, you know, the domestic chores and the occasional lunches with her friends. One thing she always found time to do was pop into Lyle's restaurant. There, she would be lent, she would always lend a set of helping hands to the waitress staff, as well as the kitchen cooks and play hostess, greeting everyone with her blackstrap molasses charm. Sidebar, so the, the waitresses of Lyle's restaurant were all white women, and the kitchen staff consisted of only African-American staff. So it was segregated, but... Um, and also to add to this, Aunt Jet had, um, an infectious quality about her and there was also, um, uh, just seeing people for people. So she had friendships or established, um, a rapport with the kitchen staff as well as one with, you know, uh, her white con- her counterparts the waitresses and the people that would come in as regulars or just, you know, popping in for the first time at Lyle's. So she was somebody who didn't not, she didn't discriminate. If she felt you, she felt you. And it is really something that I need to press because of the time that this took place. A lot of times you did not encounter, um, and it was actually pretty much like the whole family um, Mrs. Lyles, Julia was extremely sweet to the uh, kitchen staff. Like she was a great woman overall, and she didn't treat the kitchen staff any differently than she would her own family. And that's the way that Aunt Jet was as well. So I'm just going to preface all of that. So if you think you're going to hear anything kind of ugly in those regards, that's not going to happen. We can just get past that shit. The new Mrs. Lyles was fitting in perfectly amongst the crowd of patrons. The couple were weeks into their marriage when they conceived their first child. On July 24, 1948, Jet gave birth to the couple's first daughter named Marcia Elaine. Six weeks following Marcia's birth, Julia Lyles required surgery, so Ben was left to run the restaurant. In Julia's absence, Ben began to stay out late gambling and drinking. 
On one particularly bad night, Ben didn't come home. When Anjette awoke to find he hadn't been home, she began to panic. There was no answer at the restaurant. Anjette paced throughout the apartment with worry. It wouldn't be until the wee hours of the morning before a knock came at Anjette's door. While Ben probably would have preferred being brought home for public intoxication by the police, he wasn't so lucky. A neighbor in Anjette's building called Jetta after Ben was discovered passed out in his car parked in front of the Catholic Church. It took several moments to rouse Ben from his drunken stupor. After getting him into the apartment, Jetta began to unleash her maternal fury upon Anjette. Jetta continued to lay into her daughter, and <clears throat> Anjette began getting herself and Marsha dressed. Lyle's restaurant was slated to open in less than two hours, and with Ben passed out across their, across their bed, the responsibility of opening and continuing with business as usual now fell to her. Lyle's was the pulse of downtown Macon for businessmen at breakfast who came in for grits and coffee or the morning news or the ladies and lawyers who lunched and the families who came in for dinner. So that first experience may have been nervous making initially and Jet took to running the restaurant like a duck to water. In no time, Anjette was spending far more time at the restaurant than Ben was while Julia, you know, was recovering. And when Julia returned to the restaurant, Anjette continued to come in, but Ben further continued to sink into his dual addictions of drinking and gambling. Ben chose to distance himself from working at the restaurant most of the time. When Ben wrecked the car he shared with Anjette, Julia stepped in, picking up her daughter-in-law and granddaughter every morning at 5 a.m. so the women could operate the restaurant. To accommodate Marcia, a makeshift cradle was constructed in the kitchen. The Lyle women, with the help of the kitchen staff, attended to Marcia. It was during these trying times, and Jet found herself... Um, in that she discovered she was damn good at running a restaurant. Anjette loved interacting with everyone who stepped into Lyle's. As time went by, Anjette began dreaming of the day when Lyle's would be her restaurant, and she felt so passionately because of the results yielded from all of her hard work. By 1949, Ben's health began suffering from, he began suffering uh, from the effects of the rheumatic fever he'd contracted whilst in the army. As the years had gone by, Ben's associated heart conditions from the rheumatic fever began to worsen. Ben's legs and feet began swelling to the point that he was sent to the Veterans Hospital in Dublin, Georgia, for medical intervention. While Ben was a patient, uh, he began receiving disability payments from the government after being declared 100% disabled. Although Ben was released a few days later, the doctors told Anjette Ben was extremely sick, and if he continued to drink with the same level of zest and vigor he'd been, he would inevitably drink himself into an early grave. Ben appeared to be on his way to recovery when the couple became pregnant with their second child late summer 1950. 
Unlike Anjette's first pregnancy, which was easy like Sunday mornings, this second pregnancy was extremely difficult. She had like gained more weight than she had with her first pregnancy, as well as suffered in her third trimester where she developed phlebitis, which is an inf- was it, which is an inflammation I can talk, which is an inflammation of a vein that can be caused by either a blood clot or trauma to the vein wall. Anjet's condition continued beyond the May 18, 1951 birth of daughter Carla. For Anjet, being unable to return to work immediately following Carla's birth was a soul suck. Lyles had prov- proved to be both Anjet's solace and purpose in the years she'd been, you know, working there. Anjet was stir crazy as she re- recuperated. While her mother in law, Julia, was as sweet as Ambrosia, she lacked the finesse and the art of looking after the patrons, while Anjet, on the other hand, had crafted and cultivated an entire vibe at Lyles. Anjet knew she was main character in the Lyles universe, and she desperately needed to get back to work, especially since Ben hadn't been working but never hesitated to talk big cash money bullshit about how Lyles had slightly been going downhill with Julia running the show. It didn't matter to Ben that the family had owned and operated Lyles for close to 30 years or that his wife had designs to keep the business uh, for years to come. Hopefully one day it could be hers. It shouldn't come to any surprise that In June of 1951, Ben quietly and sneakily sold the restaurant without consulting Julia or Anjette to Ms. Lola Meeks for a mere $2,500. It's an understatement to say that Anjette was pissed the fuck off with Ben for his reckless move. Anjette knew Ben had been paid pennies compared to what the restaurant had become worth, all thanks to her blood, sweat, and tears poured into the business. After paying off debts with the proceeds from the restaurant sale, the family of four lived solely off of Ben's disability pension, which didn't amount to much since Ben continued to drink like a fish. Frustrated and unwilling to stay in that miserable apartment on Poplar, Anjette gathered Marcia and Carla, retreating to her brother Dole and his wife Alice's home to keep the rumor mill from turning Anjette's um, her, about her, her marital status into like the week's beauty shop gossip. She's not dumb because she talks to she's she's the hostess with the mostess. Or at least she was until he sold the restaurant, right? So she's absolutely not gonna, you know, like, let them talk about her. Also, coming from her family, and they had quite a bit of standing within the Macon community, it was all about um, not airing your dirty laundry, saving face, not, you know, putting on airs, all of that stuff. So what she did was she just told everyone that living with Dole and Alice was due to her fragile health. 
and she insisted it was necessary as her brother's maid was able to help watch the girls as she healed. Wanting to give things the college try, and probably because she'd probably worn out her welcome at Dole and Alice's, she went back to Ben with the babies in tow, and as the fall transitioned into winter, Ben was dealt another huge financial blow. The 100% disability he'd been receiving had been reduced to 10%, leaving the family of four $190 a month to live off. And I googled it last night, and it comes to roughly, I think it was like 2000 $216 and some change with the, you know, with today's rate for that money. So that's not a lot. And <clears throat> they were babies. So there was a lot of formula that the family was donating, like cans of pet milk for her to make formula out of for the baby all of that stuff. So constantly the Donovan stepped in to help Aunt Jet keep the family above water. Excuse me, my throat. <clears throat> she was also receiving help from Julia. Julia would also like contribute with like outfits and clothes and stuff like that for the babies, probably winter coats, things of that nature. And, you know, anything, anything they could, anything that she could help with. To close out 1951 in December, Ben began having alarming nosebleeds at all hours of the day. When he was seen by doctors, they were all puzzled as to what was happening to Ben medically. They assumed that the nosebleeds and severely swollen extremities were all complications stemming from his heart condition, which stemmed from the rheumatic fever. But they really did not know what was going on, so they kind of just settled on encephalitis. Throughout Ben's stay, Anjet refused to leave his bedside. But on January 25th, 1952, Ben died. Now, with only the $150 monthly widow's pension, and I didn't do the conversion on that one, Anjet was receiving from the government in lieu of Ben's death. She was forced to rely on help from her family some more. So she was no longer able to afford the apartment on Poplar Street. Anjet and her daughters moved into her parents' home. And, well, her parents had downsized their home, you know, when all of their children moved out. So basically after Anjet got married... They had downsized from their palatial home, sized home, to a modest, brand new, one level, like ranch style bungalow. And it was like the perfect size home for, you know, a couple. But Anjet and the babies needed a place to stay, so they moved in. Anjet worked as a bookkeeper for another restaurant in town and saved all of her money. During this time, Julia Lyles also became a regular at the Donovan home where she could dote on her grandchildren. Um, you know, the thing with Julia was this. Her family was, like, elsewhere-ish. 
like in like a different part of the state if I if I remember that correctly and she'd lost her husband her only remaining son was in the Marine Corps I believe and he was stationed I think in North Carolina so he was away and then Bennett passed away the grandchildren were the only ties that she had to Ben and Ben Sr. and her son who was away. And so she really leaned in more with Anjette and like really worked to maintain a loving familial relationship with her. But it was stressful as fuck because she was like all up and all up and through the Donovan's home. But, you know, it worked out for Anjette because there was always a grandparent on hand wanting to like wanting and being able to play or attend to the children, especially while she was at work. So after three long, hard years of scrimping and saving Anjette saved up $12,000 and bought back the restaurant that Ben sold right from up underneath her and renamed it Anjets. The spring of 1955 was full of promise. Also, at this point, she had gone prematurely gray and it was striking as fuck, you know, and, you know, she was statuesque. She was, um, I don't know how tall she was, but... The way that they described her was she was a little bit taller um, and she had a womanly figure. She just and she carried herself with this air of sophistication and just coolness on top of her her charisma and her charm and her grace and her poise and how she interacted with y'all in the streets you know, you tie all that together. She was a knockout. And 1955 was looking like it was going to be a upswing year for her. She was in full swing, regaining the Lyles regulars and then some. One new regular was a handsome pilot from Texas named Joe Neal Gabbard. This military vet, um fell in love with her like immediately he came in and as he was paying for the check he leaned in and told her something like I'm gonna marry you or something like that and she was like yeah okay but you know what happened is (laughs) they got married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout on June 24th, 1955, the two wed while on vacation. So he took her back to the Southwest. First he took her, like, he took her to Texas, but then he, like, took her through, like, New Mexico and stuff like that. And they weren't, like, camping and everything, and they got married. And it was very um, impromptu, if you will. After wedding, the couple set up residence in the Donovan home. So the tiny bungalow was bursting at the seams with people in the home. But they did make it work because he was a pilot, so he at least was in and out of town. Alas, four months into their marriage, Joe fell gravely ill. After receiving minor surgery on his wrist, he soon began spiking high fevers, and his body began to break out in excruciating blisters. 
he would ask to be restrained to the bed so that he could stop scratching and, you know, causing further damage. That's how bad it was. And also so he could try to get some sleep, even though he would beg to be killed because, you know, he's like, just kill me now. Please put me out of my misery. This is, this is torture beyond torture beyond torture. I cannot handle this, but this was all some weird mystery. We didn't know what was going on with him. Um, although Joe had a couple of instances where it looked like he might turn a corner with his mystery illness, it just wasn't a good look. And Jet, just like with Ben, though, she would stay by her husband's bedside and she would be feeding him a lot of food, all food and drink from the restaurant. Like she refute, like, you know, I'm the proprietor of a restaurant. There's no way in hell you're feeding my husband cafeteria food. No, no, no. And so she would always feed him and give him drinks from the restaurant. Um, but unfortunately he died on December 2nd, 1955. And Jet, now a two time widow was alone again to raise her daughters However, Anjette was not that heartbroken. In fact, after having her last name changed back legally from Gabbert to Lyles, she received a life insurance policy from Joe's death, which enabled her to buy a new car and house in early 1957, where Anjette would live with her daughters and Julia. Soon after moving into her home, Anjette also began having her maid drive her to see the people who lived out by the cotton gins um and y'all call you would call them faith healers or I don't know what like something along those lines today but back in the day they were practicing that straight up voodoo and she was heavily invested in practicing the thing is this though as a white woman she needed somebody to get her a pass basically into that part of town because the practitioners of black magic or the occult or voodoo or whatever that would do fortune telling that would be faith healing, all all of that stuff. They were living, they were old, they were probably the older African Americans that lived out in that really bad area and they, she needed her maid to get her a hood pass, essentially. <sighs> but, you know, she would also have her maid collect, you know, go back and forth for her as well from time to time, you know, to collect her candles and roots and things of that nature but Anjette was really she was really true to it she had set up altars in her home as well as in the kitchen of her restaurant she would talk about it to the kitchen staff and the waitresses anybody who would listen you know what each color candle and what it represented what these, you know, what the different roots were, what they could do, so on and so forth. Um, so it was more of a full-on practicing situation, which it was very uncommon at the time in 
little town Macon, Georgia, to find middle class white women practicing these practices essentially at the time. It was taboo as fuck. So at some point following Julia moving into Aunt Jet's home, Aunt Jet discovered a couple of bank books from her former mother in law. And the contents of the two combined bank accounts were like over sixty thousand dollars in savings. And Jet took it upon herself to make a little bit of small talk at the restaurant to a local lawyer who was a regular. And, you know, she just asked him how she should advise her her former mother-in-law with regards to making a will. Because, you know, that was a lot of money. And you should really have a will. And he said, yeah, you know, I agree. She should have a will. However, Julia steadfastly refused to do so. In August of 1957, the grim cloud that visited the loved ones of Anjet settled back over her home. Her mother-in-law, Julia, had grown ill. While she was in the hospital, Anjet continued caring for her, providing her buttermilk from the restaurant, insisting it was the only thing Julia could stomach, and tending to her bedside. Um, you know, Julia, her symptoms were she was emaciated, but then she had the swelling. She had a bad, she had bad edema, like horrific. Like she couldn't even hold a pen. Um, and she cried because she was so swollen and she couldn't hold anything down. She was vomiting all the time. So those were her symptoms, and it was all a mystery. Nobody could understand what was going on. Unfortunately, on September 29, 1957, Julia Lyles took her final breath. Shortly after Julia's death, Jet was able to produce a last will and testament that had been signed uh, by Julia, naming Jet as the executor of the her estate in fact here's what really happened is while julia lie in her bed swollen beyond measure by her own sisters and nieces omission because they've visited her in the hospital she couldn't even hold a pen she couldn't hold a spoon to put soup to her mouth she couldn't do anything. She couldn't move. But Aunt Jet had happened to show up in, I want to say it was like the registrar's office, and said that Julia had signed a will, and she was wondering if she could get that notarized. And you know what? Everybody knows Aunt Jet, so... If Julia signed a will and she needs it notarized because it's not looking good, by all means, of course, it's the least I can do to help you in this time. So the registrar notarized this will. So she did, you know, manifest an actual will, naming herself the executor of Julia's estate. 
to treat herself, and yet used some of the money she gained from Julia's death to trade in her car for an all-white Cadillac convertible that they had to go out of town for. Yeah, they had to call like a dealership because the the dealers the local dealership where she had gotten the the first car from. They were like, well, I've got a butte on lot, but it's not that color. And she said, no, 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 no. A million times no. It has to be white on white convertible, you know, Cadillac. White, 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 white. Like my hair, y'all. Because, you know, she'd gone prematurely gray. So, um, as the months proceeded, the girls, you know, continued to attend school and play but after school they were always at the kitchen you know over at Anjet's restaurant and the kitchen staff they loved the girls the girls were raised there the kitchen staff even the waitresses they thought of the children as their own you know as their own daughters so you know business was booming for Anjet. however the good times would be so short-lived it was an extremely rainy March in 1958. One day, one of the kitchen staff observed little Marcia was not well at all. Like she just kept laying her head on the, you know, on the table, and she was coughing and she was just flushed. And she kept insisting Anjet take her baby home, but it was the dinner rush. Anjet couldn't leave immediately. She instead gave Marcia a spoonful of whiskey and sugar because that was a home, it was a remedy from, she said. After quite a bit of pestering from Marcia and the kitchen staff, Anjet took Marcia home. It wasn't until she took her scalding hot daughter's temperature that she'd learned Marcia was running a 106 degree fever. After being admitted to the hospital, Anjet seldom left Marcia's bedside. She'd run back and forth between the hospital and the restaurant throughout the day. And when she would like come to the hospital, she always made sure she brought food and drinks. And oddly, though, a couple of times she'd been witnessed. And this even goes back to Miss Julia, where Anjet would go into the bathroom with the drink in her hand and come back with a spoon stirring it. Anywho, you know, at one point, uh, they thought that, you know, Marsha, you know, oh gosh, it was just, it was just horrible, you know, like, they didn't know what was going on, but as the baby was in the hospital, I call her a baby, but she was she was nine years old. An anonymous call came into the Bibb County Coroner, and the medical examiner answered the phone, and the person on the phone simply said, you better hurry or Marsha Lyles will die. And then the person hung up the phone, and he didn't know what the message meant, and so he just kind of said, okay, whatever, and hung up because it didn't make any sense. The next two SOSs were anonymous letters that Julia Lyles' sister received with no return sender or signature. 
The message simply said, please come at once. She's getting the same dose. Now, confused and concerned, Marcia's great aunt took the letter to the police, worried that Marcia was in danger. But with the lack of evidence or more information, the police didn't do anything. And frankly, they didn't take it seriously because everybody knew Anjette. You know, to be sure, this is this is a hoax. So while none of these messages made sense, one thing is for sure. On April 4th, 1958, little Marsha Lyles was also dead. Now, one death is natural. Two is misfortunate. Three is a tragedy, but four is cold-blooded murder. At least, you know, that's what the was starting to uh, come to be. Because following Marsh's death, the medical examiner recalled the weird phone call he'd received in March. Foregoing the usual general post-mortem declaration of death, you know, like just a once-over, he instead waited until the wee hours of the morning before Marsha's Easter Sunday funeral service to perform an autopsy on the child's body. After carefully extracting tissue samples from her organs, he sealed each in mason jars and sent them to the state crime lab in Atlanta. He also sent a sample of the embalming fluid that was in um, the mortician, you know, that the mortician used as well, so that it could be ruled out. You know, you know it was very smart. He, he knew what he was doing. So they sent this up to the state crime lab in Atlanta, and when the autopsy results came back, it was found that Marsha had died of arsenic poisoning. Now, he was perplexed by the findings, so he called Aunt Jet, and he was like, hey, you know, girl, I'm concerned. I need you to come in. And so Aunt Jet kind of knew. He was like, mm, kind of, I think he may have even alluded to the word poisoning. He said, arsenic may be over the phone, so he said, I need you to come in. And Aunt Jet and Carla promptly arrived to the meeting with the Emmy. Actually, no, he hadn't said poison yet. But Anjette and Carla promptly arrived to the meeting with the Emmy. After explaining to Anjette the findings from Marsh's autopsy, Anjette placed Carla like on the doctor's table and she looked at her and she's like, Now Carla, tell the doctor what you told me. And Carla looks up at her mommy and I feel like this is how it went. She's, like, looking at her, and she's, like, kind of hesitant. And seven-year-old Carla looks up at her mother, and she says, Sister and I were playing with the Jones twins, and we were playing hospital. Like, she's reading a whole script, like, like, and then, like, she kind of is, like, looking at her mom kind of, like, for the answers. Like, a good stage mom would, like, give her that look, like, don't your lines and she's like oh yes we yes yes we were playing hospital and we were we used i saw sissy using ant killer's medicine like when they were playing with their imaginative play carla said that marcia drank tarot ant killer 
which was supposed to be medicine, to which Anjette produced a brown paper bag containing the poison from her purse. Flummox, the doctor asked Anja if she'd informed Mrs. Jones of the possibility that her children may have accidentally poisoned themselves. And she tells him no. So he like insists immediately. She's like, oh, I'll call her when I get home. And he's like, no, ho, you gonna call her now. Now. So she grabs the phone book. She's like, oh, but I don't know the number. And he's like, well, here's the phone book. And so she, you know, looks up the looks up the number and then she dials and she calls and she just says hey this is Ann Jet. just wanting you to know that the twins may have gotten into some ant killer and drank it okay bye like literally like she just like was okay that's it so while Ann Jet was certain she'd put an end to any talks of poisoning Police were not 100% on board with her story or the series of mysterious deaths that swirled around. So, exhumations and autopsies of Ben, Joe, and Julia were conducted. Now, one thing is this. In 1957, Mr. Donovan died, but before he died, when Joe died... She held on to his body. When his family asked for his remains to be sent to Texas, she insisted that, no, they're going to be up here. And I think she had him buried, like, somewhere, like, around the area where, like, Ben was at. But in 1957, when her father passed away, she finally had a change of heart because she was devastated. She was gutted. And so she, like had his remain, you know, she told his family, y'all can have him. So, his body had to be exhumed again, is, is what I'm getting at as far as this is concerned, because he had been moved from one plot to Texas, and now he's got to be plucked out of said plot. And they were really quick about it. They were quick, they were thorough, the in the book they said that they had witnesses who would quickly identify the body and then the doctor would get in there extract whatever tissue samples he needed quickly and then they would get the bodies right back into the ground um because they really wanted to get all of these testings done uh now, peculiarly, while these tests were being run, testing for the arsenic poison, Aunt Jet was admitted to the local hospital suffering from a myriad of the same symptoms her four loved ones had succumbed to. Now, one thing is this. At one point when she was mixing up the lemonade for, I think it was lemonade. Lemonade was what uh, Marcia could drink. When she was mixing it, she took the spoon and she licked it or she put it to her mouth in front of everybody in the kitchen because they were kind of, I think at this point when Marsha got sick and she'd been seen stirring cups and stuff coming from the commode or the toilet, I'm sorry, they, um, 
were kind of getting, they were kind of giving her the side eye, kind of worried, like, this kind of looks suspicious. Also, listen, just because you work for somebody doesn't mean you're dumb and you don't see what's going on around you. But she took that spoon and she put it to her mouth and they said the next day her lips were blistered and her mouth was jacked up. So there's that. So anywho, while Aunt Jet may have thought she'd gained the sympathy of her community, town gossip had begun and it was beginning to look like Aunt Jet was guiltier than sin. As she lay in the hospital, she was arrested for the murders of Ben, Joe, Julia, and Marcia. After searching Anjette's home, bottles of tarot ant killer were found in her dresser drawer and a closet. Alongside the intriguing voodoo altars, police found a sock with a man's picture inside it pinned to her mattress. And this was like a duder that she like started dating or whatever. And then he was like, you know what, homie? Um, this ain't gonna work. And then, like, yeah. So she kind of, like, I think it was like he was, like, he was messing around or something. And so she was trying to spell cast to get him back. It was like a lover spell. Which has nothing to do with anything else. But they did make note of all of this. Following her release from the hospital, Anne Jett was taken into police custody. In 1958, Georgia, the jails weren't equipped to hold females. So provisions were made where she was housed like in this room above the courthouse and it was hot as hell up there hot as hell like you know and they would like have her food sent up and the um the head jailer his wife would be her supervisor like basically like her sitter and the two of them became, like, they sparked up, like, a kinship. Because also, the, as head jailer, he was equipped with, they get, they furnished him with an apartment within the courthouse. And so, when it was the nighttime and he was working and his wife was supposed to be sitting for, you know, and jet sitting, most of the time that took place inside their apartment where they'd sit and smoke cigarettes drink coca-colas and watch tv and talk and you know the wife was super sweet and she really felt that Anjet was innocent and she could not fathom because she herself was a mother of eight she could not fathom any mother harming her youngin and so she didn't think that Anjet had done any of the crimes that they were saying that she had committed and and jet you know rode that friendship hard so as the prosecutors and defense prepared for their trial and jet waited and her trial finally arrived in october this was the case of like the decade every day the courthouse was filled to the brim with housewives and people from towns over during the trial, the prosecution focused on all of the monetary gain Anjet had from the deaths of her family members. To give further credence, to the prosecution had a handwriting expert explain Julia's forged will. They also called the medical examiner to, to the stand to explain in great detail how all four deaths had been uh, by long-term poisoning. So basically, he broke it down as this. You cannot... 
you cannot just give somebody one dose of ant killer and expect them to drop over dead. They're going to, if you get, they're going to puke it up. You know, they're not going to, their body's not going to want to receive it. But over a means of course of time, so slow dosing, the body holds on to the poison. And also with the arsenic poisoning, it will glom onto whatever pre-existing medical issue you had. So let's just say you had bronchial issues like Marsha, coughing, all of that stuff. Those would be a part of your symptomology. Uh, the edema associated with the heart conditions, so on and so forth. You would not just immediately know that it was poison. Now, fingernails and hair hold arsenic. You know, the arsenic doesn't leave the body. And if you've been slow dose poisoned, it's going to show that in your fingernails and in your hair. So you're not going to get away with it. So don't fucking try it. That is your disclaimer. Anywho, he explained all of this in great detail. Uh, after the prosecution rested, Anjet took the stand to plead her innocence. And like the whole time during the trial, she had been sitting there taking notes. And so she was going there like bullet point by bullet point of everything that they said that shined her in a shitty light or anything that they said that she did that she refuted or whatever. She, she tried to, she tried to do it. She really did. Um, but the jury deliberated for only an hour before returning with a guilty verdict. Now, Anjette had been found guilty and punished to death by the electric chair, although she was transferred to prison and placed on death row, actually executing a white woman in the state of Georgia was something that had never been done before, and it wasn't something that the state felt completely comfortable with, and this is something that they knew, like, it was like, She's guilty and we need to find her guilty of this, but the punishment that we are imposing on her, the first person that had ever, there's there had only been, the only person that had ever been executed in the state, here's the thing, it wasn't that the state didn't feel comfortable with executing women, they didn't feel comfortable with executing white women, because the state had no qualms with executing Alice Riley, who was hanged in 1735 for murdering her master. But to put a white woman on death, like to death, was like way different. So it came down to the point where, like, she was just weeks away from her execution date. Because listen, the judge didn't budge on it, but the governor was so pressed about the issue. And I mean, like, rightfully so, con considering the times that it w that they were in, it was unprecedented. So he was so pressed about the issue that he appointed a sanity commission that would inevitably they'd ask they asked her a bunch of questions for days on end, and she basically parroted and pretended to be batshit crazy. Because one thing that she did say after she was found guilty to her friend the jailer's wife was that 
she just could not be put to death. She didn't want that to be her legacy for her daughter, Carla. Listen, I could be guilty, but y'all are going to say I'm nuttier than a June bug. I'd rather be crazy than executed, essentially, as far as my legacy for my daughter. So she gave them everything that they wanted, and they, in turn, came back with saying she was insane and following the commission's findings and jet was transferred to the state mental hospital where she would work in the kitchen, the kitchen contently until her death in 1977. So what had happened to this? Um, I don't, no, it didn't, there was no explanation as to what could have given her the inspiration to become a poisoner. However, I can see the catalyst for Ben was when her mother showed up at her doorstep and berated the dog piss out of her and then you know like shortly thereafter you know he sold the business from up underneath her and that's when I think she actually really started dosing his ass up that I think that was the that was actually the straw that broke the camel's back so I think that when he sold the business to Ms. Meeks that's when she started slowly poisoning him because fuck this shit that was mine and then she figured whatever she did collect a little bit of insurance on him as well it would end up coming out but you know what I mean she's to her he was better off dead and gained upon so that she could regain what he took from her because he sold the restaurant without even so much as a mention of it to her so that she could go on with the dreams that she had you know created for herself then you move on to Joe Gabbard and as soon as they got together there was also a life insurance policy situation where she kind of, yeah, yeah. And I want to say that, like, he just wasn't really all that with it after a little bit. And he was kind of canoodling with other people. And so that's when his slow dosing started after his wrist surgery. And then from there, she collected on that. And then when she bought the house and Julia moved in. And she found, I think she searched it out. I think she kind of had a suspicion that Julia had squirreled away a savings from having Lyle's restaurant all those years. And so once she figured out what Julia was worth, she figured out how, you know, that she needed to get rid of her. 
because if she wasn't worth much, she probably would have kept Julia around because Julia was beneficial as far as being helpful with the girls. But she was a hindrance because she was living in her home and she's the former mother-in-law and she's kind of like the hitching her giddy up from doing whatever she wants to do in her own home as well. But also the monetary gain because that's all Anjette ever saw. Again, every time somebody died, she went and did something fantastically gaudy and glow up-ish. Ben died. She bought the fucking restaurant back. Joe died. She bought a house and a car. Julia died. She traded in the first car that she bought for the all-white Cadillac. And upon Marsha's death, she kind of was unable to do anything about it because she had to try to go um, into crisis mode where she was trying to rally everything together. Now, I'll tell you this. The anonymous phone caller slash letter writer was one of the cooks in the kitchen. And she was extremely pained to see Anjette killing off everybody, especially Marsha, because she was so close with Marsha. And it was kind of like with Ben, it was bad luck. With Joe, they kind of had the side eye. And they were kind of noticing things. Like I said, they weren't dumb. They were observant. They, they're they just things that you just can't say. Because as cool as everybody was with each other in that kitchen, there still were stations in life. Things were still segregated and you could not speak out of turn. And so this person had to use anonymity to try to put out multiple SOSs to try to save Marsha's life. Um... And that was really what did Anjette in because that really got the ball moving after Marsha's death. And they really looked into everything swiftly. It, within, it took no time once they got onto it. So there's that. Um, I also understand how the the era made it so that she was unable to be prescribed the manner of justice or I don't know how would you call it punishment for the crimes that she committed by being executed because of segregationist thoughts and because it is Georgia and you just didn't do that at the time so but giving her the outability of insanity vices giving her life in prison where she played him like a fiddle and then you know people would say oh no she was crazier than a june book she was deteriorating well eventually uh the mind might you know but everything that she did when she did what she did was cold hard calculated cunning Everything was with purpose and gain. So I do believe that, like, she got off really light because she was able to go to a hospital instead of being incarcerated adequately and properly and appropriately. But, I mean, she ended up dying of, I think it was, like, heart failure or something like that, but it was basically, you know... 
a normal death, unlike the deaths that she doled out to four people who loved her. Whew. Okay, so that is the episode. I'm donezo with it. I hope you guys liked it. I'll be back really soon with another one. And I am going to bid you adieu. Have a good one. Happy Sunday. Bye.